is the Beaver Tales podcast with Josh Wharton, who has covered Oregon State athletics since 2013. Well, hi, everybody. Honored that you join me again on the Beaver Tales podcast. Or if this is your first time, thanks for tuning in to the podcast where we talk with former Oregon State athletes. We reminisce about their time competing for the Beavers and talk about what they've done and learned since leaving OSU. Zach Taylor is my guest today on the podcast. He was a six foot three first baseman slash catcher on the Beaver baseball team through his senior year in 2019. He was the starting first baseman in the College World Series finals team for OSU, beating Arkansas back in 2018. He's gone on to play professional baseball, not in a conventional way in the minor leagues like a lot of players who get drafted and play for an affiliate of a pro franchise, but an independent ball where these teams are still professional and still get paid, just don't have an affiliation with an MLB club. Now, Zach hopes to perhaps be signed by an MLB affiliate at some point, but he's played for a team in Illinois, and he'll talk about his time with the Gateway Grizzlies of the Frontier League, an independent club. Zach is a native of Sherwood, Oregon, which only made it mean that much more that his national championship came with Oregon State University. It was also really fun because... Sure, it's going to be enjoyable for me to talk with a national champion. How cool is it to talk with a guy who was on the field in Omaha, one of the starting players in the national championship squad, but I could really tell that Zach himself very much enjoyed talking about it, reminiscing about it, and going through some specific memories, like when he was the leadoff hitter in the ninth inning of Game 2. You remember that Caden Grenier foul ball and Trevor Larnick's home run? Well, who scored that run? Well, it was actually Zach Clayton, who was pinch-running, for Zach Taylor. Zach led off that inning with a walk and kind of got it all started. If he had not drawn that walk, would Oregon State have won that game? We'll never know, but it would have been a lot harder, and Zach Taylor deserves a lot of credit. We talk about that specific inning, the celebration after Game 3, beating LSU earlier in the postseason, and a lot more as well as what he's learned and looks forward to in his post-OSU career. Speaking of post-OSU, there's also a guy in Matt Boyd I like to mention on this podcast and his charity. It's called Kingdom Home. It's a fantastic nonprofit that serves children in Uganda who are at risk of being involved in the sex slave industry. Matt Boyd and his wife Ashley run a home in Uganda where they kind of operate it from afar with a house parent staff that are helping out with this organization and the precious children who are living in this home they've got in Uganda. They give education and preparation empowerment for the next stage of life. They never age out any kids. So even when they get to 18, 20 years old, they only move them out of the house when they're ready to. I could talk about them all day long, but you can learn more at their website at kingdomhome.org. That's kingdomhome.org. Thanks for checking them out and listening to the Beaver Tales podcast, including this episode with Beaver Baseball National Champion, Zach Taylor. Zach joins me from Sherwood. How you doing, Zach? Yeah, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So you're playing independent ball now after transitioning away from Oregon State in 2019. How did you find that independent club once you left OSU uh, just a year ago, basically? Yeah, my story was was kind of crazy, like my senior year, um, especially finding the independent team that I ended up on. So I didn't really have any options. I had a tough senior year, probably one of my worst years playing baseball, I would say from a like a personal standpoint. But I knew I, I still wanted to play. I wasn't done playing yet. So I actually ended up, I didn't have any options professionally when I'm drafted. 
didn't even have any contacts with any independent ball teams. So I ended up, I signed a contract to go play in Okotoks in Canada in the Western Baseball Canadian League. So they take graduated seniors actually. So I was an old guy, I was basically playing summer ball again. And I got a connection. So Andy Peterson, he was an assistant um, at Oregon State. We made a really good connection. He's a head coach at Lynn Benton now. He kind of made it work for me. And I, and I actually went up there for four days. I ended up playing two games. And then I ended up getting a call from independent team that I reached out to. Um, they were, they wanted to make a change, uh, behind the plate. They knew I was a catcher and I had, I had a lot of guys on our coaching staff, uh, Andy Jenkins specifically, he really vouched for me and said that, you know, I could, I could manage a staff and they needed a defensive catcher. And so I was able to fly out to Sajay, Illinois. And I, that's how I started my professional career. I played about 60 games, a little over. So your one season and playing for the gateway Grizzlies of yep. the frontier league and independent ball. What is that like in terms of the, the teammates you've got and who's there? I mean, they're not guys who are hoping to get called up to double A or triple A because there is no affiliation. So are these mostly still players who have a major league dream? Or are they just kind of enjoying the last couple of years of baseball and your own dream? Or what's that like in independent ball? Yeah, it's, in, in indie ball, it's kind of a mix. I mean, maybe you have some guys that um, they were in affiliate baseball, you know, and then they got released, but they still want to keep playing, trying to get back into affiliate baseball. I would say for most of the guys, um, you're playing to get picked up by a team. Um, and, and I mean, that's, that's my goal still. So, um, but yeah, you, you have guys maybe like myself, right, that came out of college that went undrafted, and so we still want to play. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I went to. And then, like you said, you also have older guys. Um, we had a few guys on our team that were veterans, and they had double-A time, um, some good players. So, and they're just trying to – maybe they might have lost their way for a little bit, and they're still trying to play. So you kind of get those different, like, perspectives. Whenever your playing career ends, whether that's a few years or 15 years from now, yeah. what sort of things might you have on the horizon after that? Because I know you were a psychology major, I believe, at Oregon yeah. State. So what would you like to do post-baseball, whenever that may be? So right now, I mean, I know I want to stay within the game of baseball. Um, and I kind of have – I've always had this thought that I feel like I could impact more people from the coaching side of things than I ever could as a player. And I just – like I said, I love the game. And I kind of – I just want to impact guys, you know, around me, especially guys that are really talented. I feel like, you know, I could help and maybe provide some perspective. And specifically, I've been kind of leaning toward, like you said, with my psychology degree. I think after I'm done playing, I'd, I'd like to ideally maybe take a GA somewhere and get my master's in sports psych and then work either at the college level or the professional level as maybe like a mental skills coach. And that's kind of interesting to me. And I feel like that's a place where I could really help some guys around me from specifically the mental side of the game. I'm guessing you and Kyle Novak, who is a very mental game heavy, like very, let's get really intensive about visualization, Stephen Kwan mm -hmm. too. And I think Kyle was a sociology major. So I'm guessing you guys can have some pretty interesting discussions. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, I talk to that guy usually like, you know, every other week and we'll have a long, like 40 minute conversation. We always end up talking about baseball, specifically the mental game. But that was, I mean, that's something we were really passionate about that year that we wanted actually that I know we'll go into more, but um, especially from the side of like meditation and visualization, I think that helped um, Kyle and I out a ton and is one of the reasons why we were able to play in that lineup every day and with especially that supporting cast. So when you were doing the meditation, 
and Stephen Kwan was explaining a bit. I think Tyler Graham was leading it to a certain degree, and it was a lot of visualizing success, seeing it happen, expecting it to happen, and then just watching it happen when you're actually doing it. What specifically, what was that practice like? Were you sitting in a quiet room and you're, you know, six guys in a circle and someone leads it like, imagine this, or how does that work exactly? Yeah. So one is we did it every day, whether it was practice or game day, we ended up actually going in the player's lounge. We turn off all the lights. Everyone basically get an uncomfortable spot on the floor, trying to lay down flat if if you want to, whatever's comfortable. And you close your eyes and then Tyler Graham would actually kind of go through um, sort of a script that he would read through. He got it from Alan Jager. He's a big mental skills coach and he worked with our team too. He would meet us when we'd go down to UCLA or USC. And so he would kind of just run us through. Basically, it was, it was a meditation, but it was also a visualization too. Basically, more so like on the field visualization, picturing yourself in the batter's box, hitting certain pitches, really seeing the ball fly off your bat. I would always picture myself hitting the ball in the gaps, for example. I'd also picture myself at first base, like fielding ground balls, just trying to put myself in different positions. So then by the time I'm already in the game, I've had mental reps because I mean, the biggest thing is a lot of people don't know is when you have a mental rep, your brain can't tell the difference between whether that was real or if it wasn't. So the whole point is like, if I can get thousands of reps mentally, it's like, I've already been in that situation. So that was, I know you can talk to Kyle about it too, but we already talked about it. We prepared mentally so well for Omaha, I think, just knowing like I pictured myself in that stadium, in that box. I mean, thousands of times I've had so many at-bats in that stadium. And I think that's what really helped me why I stayed, you know, so calm and um, was able to put together a pretty good like postseason run for myself, you know. Right. W- one more on the meditation. When you do all the pre-practice and pre-game reps, when you're in the player's lounge and you're imagining yourself hitting a ball into the gap, you're expecting and wanting to then see that happen And as you step up to the plate for your first at-bat of the game. But the way baseball works is you can't bat a thousand, you know, going one for three is a a fairly good day. So when you, I'm sure this happened plenty of times where you visualize a lot, you feel prepared, and then you start out a game over two. How do you try to get back to that confidence? Maybe you had at the beginning of the game of realizing I may have visualized this a hundred times, but I'm naturally still going to fail in the game of baseball constantly. So how do you visualize through that and try to get a hit in your third at bat? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's why there, I think there was a certain maturity that comes with that, knowing how the game works, right? There's going to be times, like you said, you're going to start off a game 0 for 2, or you, you know, you're not going to see the ball very well that day. Whatever it may be, you might struggle. But I think just staying with that process and, you know, really believing in yourself and trusting your skills and also trusting the mental preparation that, you know, I've had. It really didn't, it got to a point, it didn't matter if, you know, I went 0 for 2 or my first two at bats say I struck out, you know. It was that trust that, you know, I'm eventually, I'm going to trust my process. I'm going to trust my game plan that day and my approach and, you know, hoping for something good that will happen. I mean, it's almost kind of speaking and, you know, willing that into existence in a sense. Right. As we transition a little bit towards your college career, right before we you know, get back to your, your time coming into Oregon State and all that, one final note on what you've done since OSU, now that you're really only about a year, year and a half since finishing your Oregon State career, you haven't been outside of OSU that much, but in, in that time that you have spent, what off the field lessons have you learned or how have you changed as a person how you want to impact players and people outside of baseball that sort of thing what life lessons may you have learned since leaving Corvallis 
Shoot, I think really more so, especially leaving to go to the Midwest. You know, I haven't spent a ton of time away from my family in the Northwest. Um, I've traveled a little bit, especially because of baseball. But, I mean, independent baseball, minor league baseball in general, it's just you're on your own a lot more and really kind of by yourself. And, you know, you don't, your family's not going to be there for every game. Whereas in college, you know, I was fortunate, like, my parents would come down to every home series. So I think really just valuing the relationships you have. A big thing for me was keeping in touch, like, with my best friends, especially throughout the season. I think that's really important. And I think it's good because, you know, too much of anything – isn't good you know everything in moderation and yes we are professional athletes it's our job now but at the same time it's like you need to keep up I think with other people in your life because at the end of the day it's like base you know I love the game of baseball but it doesn't define me and like what truly matters I feel like in life is the relationships you have with people and I think it's good for your mental health too you know when you're able to talk to your best friends talk to your family and communicate with them and then shoot other than that I think just really taking the time it's so awesome the one great thing about like minor league and independent baseball is the amount of kids that come to games you know in those smaller and usually these teams are in like these smaller communities for the most part kind of scattered throughout the United States so you get a lot of kids and they come to games and they see you as like this big superstar you know, and they, I think just taking the time for that next generation. And I feel like it's part of our job and our duty as players to really pass that on and show these younger guys that like, if anything, I always think that's like, I want to treat these younger kids like how I want them to be treated. You know, if I was six or seven coming to games and being so excited to see these guys, because it's like, that's what I want to do. And I want these kids to even think like, oh, I want to be, you know, I want to be good. I want to be better than him kind of thing. So um, I think just kind of setting the table for that next generation, it's important to just take the time for the kids. I like to hear that foresight and, and appreciating that. And you've only gotten a year out of Oregon State, but you're already thinking about that sort of thing, which is good to hear. So I, I like that. Um, let's transition back to Oregon State and coming in. Speaking of the buddies you have and the people you've kept in touch with and the teammates, yeah. Adley Rutschman was a guy you played with for a large part of your mm -hmm. college career. Let me take you back to spring of 2014. Adley okay. Rutschman was playing at Sherwood High School as a sophomore. Sherwood had a first-team all-league player at catcher. However, this all-league and all-state player was not Adley Rutschman. He did get first-team all-league, but the starting catcher for Sherwood High School in 2014 was who? <laughs> that was me. <laughs> so yeah. he, did, he was younger than you, but did he – how did that work where you already had the catcher gig, and even though he would go on to become a catcher – you had it locked down and even Adley Rutschman couldn't pry away that starting job from you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's honestly just kind of the fit of our team at that time, too. Um, I mean, you know, you wanted both of us in the lineup, clearly, every day. And I know, I think part of that, too, was Rutsch dealt with a little bit of arm trouble in high school. But I think the thing is, you know, I kind of, I, I started catching and, you know, I was, I think I developed a little bit faster at the time, which is kind of funny to say now. But because um, Rutch really developed into his body and kind of took off his junior and senior year, especially. Um, so I think just I kind of hit it and caught it at the right time. And something I can always like, you know, mess with him about and hold over him a little bit. But no, that's I mean, that guy's he's one of my he's one of my best friends. And, you know, I love him to death. And um, it's something that we always look back on. And I, you know, I can tell my kids someday that hey, at the time, though, like who was really better in high school fun to always talk about when you when you catch up now when you came into Oregon State uh like you were saying about the front in the beginning of your career is your freshman season and sophomore you weren't playing a ton yet KJ Harrison was getting a lot of playing time you 
only batted 125 your freshman year. Your sophomore yeah. year, your numbers looked better, but you're still only starting about a quarter of the games at that point, sophomore season. Right. Junior year, you're starting most of the games, and you batted yeah. 274, looked really good. How did your confidence level develop? I mean, you talked about your mental confidence and, and wanting to coach, and we haven't talked about Pat Casey at all. So what role yeah. did Pat Casey or other mentors play in your growth, especially mentally? I think mentally, um, especially my junior year, and like I don't think a ton of people know, but Case really, really pushed me from a mental standpoint. And the best thing I can say about Case is he believed in me more than I believed in myself at one point, but really got me to play at a high level that at one point, I don't think early in that season that I might not have been able to get to without his help, you know? And he also knew kind of what made me tick as a player and that he could really ride me, but I would respond. Um, and so I'm, and I'm forever thankful, you know, that he did push me even at times when I was like, okay, you know, this might be a lot. Uh, I don't, I don't know about this, but he absolutely like knew what he's doing. And, you know, I love the guy to death. We, and we talk about it now and we we kind of get a good laugh about it, but yeah, no, I, I think from a mental standpoint, cause I kind of realized that you have to understand like kind of what you're working with. I mean, I knew especially in that lineup. I mean, our first five batters were first round picks and then you got Quan and fifth round picks. So there's not a, you know, there's not a ton of room to break in that lineup. And then on top of it, it's like, you, you got to play at a high level. You, if you want to be in the lineup. And so from a mental standpoint, I think that's where I could have an advantage is just especially like having a good approach, having a plan when I'm going to the plate. I know I'm not the most athletic, the fastest guy on the field, the hardest thrower, but I knew I could play very well defensively, especially with that group. Um, I brought something to the table there for sure. And then also, I was really fortunate. Not many times do you have your your uh, your first baseman as your nine hole, you know. But I could really handle the bat, and that's something that I took a lot of pride in. And if that meant turning over the lineup, and if I needed to lay a sack down two or three times a game, it's like I would do that, you know. And that's a way that again, like I said, got me in the lineup and something I took pride in. You know, I'm happy I I was accepting of my role in that time. The statement you made of Pat Casey had more confidence in me than I had in myself mm -hmm. is a common theme actually with some of the other players. Like even Stephen Kwan was similar at one point. He wasn't super confident in himself. Michael Gretler had a period of time where Pat Casey really boosted his confidence. Sure, some of these players like a Jack Anderson or even a Kyle Novak were at one point their walk-ons. You could see why they would need a confidence boost and would need something like that. But for a lot of these players, I mean, Stephen Kwan was a fifth-round draft pick by Cleveland, and a lot of these players are being recruited. So this may sound like a weird question, but why is it, I'll say, that you didn't already have more confidence? Maybe that's common among D1 athletes that as good as you may be in your background is that there's still a little doubt. There's still a little, ah, can I do this? Can I actually get there? And Pat Casey seemed to really believe you could. So can you explain that a little bit about why Pat Casey noticed it sooner than you or a lot of the other players did? I think for me specifically, um, you know, I, I, I didn't have a ton of, um, you know, national experience um, coming in. You know, I played in the area code games and that was awesome. But even that, like that kind of overwhelmed me. I didn't do very well there. But that was my first time playing against some real talent, like especially guys that are going to be top round draft picks. And just kind of understanding, like, that's pretty much the level, especially in Pac-12 baseball. I mean, you get a lot of good arms, a lot of good players from that, you know, have played on Team USA and have played all across the country. So for me, I think it was, I almost made it bigger than it was, if that makes sense. So 
it was almost like, you know, I've always, as a little kid, it's like I'm wanting to play for the Beavs. And then finally you get that moment, you put the jersey on, you make it bigger, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm playing against Washington or, you know, I'm playing against some other school, some SEC school. But at the end of the day, it's still baseball. It's still the same game we've always played. It's just you're wearing a different uniform. You might be on a different stage. But at the same time, it's, you know, the fundamentals and everything is still the same about the game. And I think Coach Casey really made me realize that. And then also, I think, you know, I, I, I felt looking back at my college career, I, I worked pretty hard, um, especially in the weight room and, you know, on the field, whether it be after practice, to just be the best at my position and to help that team win specifically. And, you know, I take pride in that. And I think he kind of saw that. And even though my confidence wasn't there, maybe because I didn't play a lot, you know, my freshman and sophomore year, I never, I didn't believe I was a dude until like my junior year. And so he really helped enforce that and helped me believe in it. So it's something that he always saw in me. And I think that was through like my work ethic and things like that and knew that, you know, I might not be the most athletic guy. I might not be a first round pick, but it's like, I could still help this team win. So I think I, and I appreciate him, you know, help working me into a lineup and realizing that this was a, a space that I could fit into. And that mental side of the game is so nuanced. I'm sure we could talk all day about it. Let's go to some specific games and talk about memories. Uh, like in 2018, we'll mostly focus on the College World Series and the finals, but LSU was a big part of growing into that postseason. You had three hits against LSU in the regionals and then another hit in them the, the second game where you eliminated the Tigers. After LSU eliminated you in 2017, can you explain the satisfaction of beating LSU, eliminating them in 2018? Yeah, I don't – it's funny because I, I talked to a ton of people about our postseason run, and not a lot of people understand, like, how bad we wanted to beat LSU. And specifically, it was one of those things, you know, they lost some key parts from that the year before's team, and they were a good club. And they were still a good club when we played them at our place, but – we just knew that it's like whenever you're playing in Goss, especially in a, in a postseason setting, like it's just you kind of have the upper hand as far as, you know, you have your home crown behind you. It was electric first off. Our fans were behind us too. You know, everyone wanted to beat LSU. There's always been this notion. It's like, you know, I don't think a ton of West Coast schools get the love and respect as, you know, some of these SEC and ACC schools. And for them to come over and, you know, us really beat them good, it felt good and it meant so much to us, you know, especially a lot of the guys that are from Oregon. It meant a lot to especially play that well. I know for me personally to perform in that setting, like, I mean, that, that was awesome and it meant the world for me, but it was also, it was just, we were so motivated for that series. So you eliminate the Tigers, you move on through the Super Regionals to the College World Series, and you yep. get all the way to the finals against Arkansas. You had lost the first game and you get to game two, down 1-0. And let me take you to the fifth inning of game two of yep. that final series. So nobody's on and there's one out. The game is tied one-to-one. Bring me to your at-bat here in the fifth inning. What happened there? And then a couple bunts that happened after your at-bat. Yeah, in game two, you said, right? Yeah. Yeah, so um, I knew that I needed to, you know, put together a good at-bat, get on base. Again, just kind of going back to what I said, just doing, doing your job. Um, not making the game too big knowing that there's no room at that point. It's like we're always – we lost our first game when we got there. You kind of have your backs against the wall, but it's like that's kind of how we wanted it. It's At that time, it's like there's no room to, to think about, oh, what if, or 
to play fear. You just got to play fearless and you got to go all in. And we were already in that setting last year. We knew what it felt like to come close and lose. And so at that point, it was just, you know, just going kind of balls to the wall and playing the game that we could. We knew we had the right pieces. We knew we had the right squad. We had arms. We were deep and we were really talented. And then on top of that, it's like there's a certain toughness and guys just willing to do their job in that moment. And I think that was the biggest thing. Gotcha. So a couple of bunts and you get a, that fifth inning was real productive, but things went bad after that because Arkansas gets a couple yep. runs on the board in the bottom of the fifth. So now you're yep. trailing again trailing. by one, three to two was the score at that point. Go to the eighth and you're still down one run. So yep. you, you're in the bottom of the eighth and you're still playing first base at this point. And you yep. know the whole time that you'll be leading off in the ninth inning. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you go back out in the field and you have to play three outs and hopefully you keep it a one-run game. And Kevin Abel did exactly that. He struck out the side in the eighth, yep. so it's three to two. But what were you thinking as you're playing first base and you're thinking, all right, I'm going to be up first in the ninth inning. We're down by one. It's our last frame. Take me to when you were in the field, not even to that at-bat, but already yeah. knowing you'd be the leadoff hitter. I love that you asked this question because I've kind of always wanted to talk about this because I knew from that instance, it's like, okay, I'm leading off this thing. And I knew I was going to get that at bat too. And honestly, like, I think if you looked at numbers, especially through our playoff run, there's a lot of times that I had led off innings and that I would get on base. And so I was always confident leading off innings. And it was something that I caught myself initially thinking about, but at the same time, and then I realized like, okay, I need to go back to my defensive process, right? Because I need to be ready to go. We need to put up a zero this thing. And then I can worry about my at bat. But really after that final pitch of that inning, I remember going off the field and really just taking some time to breathe and collect my thoughts in the sense of, I know who I'm seeing. I know I'm going to get a ton of fastballs. They're going to try to go right after me. I'm going to get pitches early in the count. But at the same time, it's like, I don't need to freak out. I can swing at my pitch. He's going to, like I said, he's going to give me pitches to hit. And just really having the notion in my head that one of two things is going to happen here. I'm either going to get on with a hit or I'm going to walk. And there's really no other option because that's what the team needs. That's what I know I can do. I'm confident in myself. And kind of, like I said, just kind of willing that into existence. But like in a very confident way. And I was, and I can honestly say from that at bat in game two, that was probably my biggest at bat of my career so far, professional or college. And I, that was probably the calmest I was in that moment. And like, you know, I really, again, I take a lot of pride saying that. And just because I knew from a mental aspect, you know, you don't know until you get in that moment, whether you prepared or not. And I knew a thousand percent I prepared myself best I could. Going in, it's like there was really no pressure because I did everything in my power to put myself in that situation. And so I felt like I'd been there before. And I really did. And um, so, again, I had all the confidence. And it didn't matter if I, you know, I was fouling pitches off and I hit those two long foul balls. So, but, and like I said, I think that gave me, especially as the at-bat went along, I felt more and more confident because I was barreling pitches, fouling pitches straight back. I knew I was on him. I knew I was only going to get Peters. So, yeah, I, I liked my chance, especially when I only know one pitch is coming. <laughs> right. I think he threw, thir you know, 40 pitches that game and like 39 of them were fastballs. It was funny. I mean, there's that visualization coming back to that. If you knew what to expect, you felt prepared, like you've been in that moment. It was even more ironic because you had only had eight walks all season. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And that was your ninth one all year. Troy Clonch had more walks than you, and you had six times as many at-bats all year than Troy. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you do get the walk. You get the first. 
explain the feeling of trotting down to first base immediately getting pulled from the game but I'm sure still feeling like you got your job done yeah I I remember uh, I was so excited that I, I look back on it I shake my head but you know usually you get down with your at bat I have a late guard and you usually just leave it in the box right and I'm so pumped up and fired up and I might have said a choice word or something but looking at our dugout, just kind of looking at the guys, like, here we go. Like, this is what we needed. And just looking, and especially I knew in that moment, getting down to first base was a great feeling, but there's more to do, you know? Like, now my focus shifts not on me, like I did my job, but now it's like, how can I support my other guys around me? Especially knowing that, like, I knew I wasn't going to stay on base. I knew it was going to come out of the game. Um, but looking back, it's like, that's that's the best feeling. I thought it was fitting that it was a walk too, because like I said, didn't have a lot of those um, that year. But yeah, in that moment, I was just, I was really happy how I prepared. Um, and kind of looking back on it, it's just that it makes me very happy that that was probably my biggest at-bat to date. And I was just, I was prepared for it. And I'm proud of that. So Zach Clayton comes in to pinch run for you and yeah. you watch a dramatic Oh, thrilling God. ninth inning from the dugout were you up on the top step of the dugout and what was your recollection no I saw so I was bottom over far left I was right next to coach Yeski the entire time and I think part of that was because he was a guy that I always talked to and we had a really close relationship and he was kind of a guy that he was pretty calm and cool and collected and I was freaking out at this point right knowing I'm not going to go in the game I was pumped for my guys but it's just that butterfly feeling this is something you dream of and now you're actually in this situation like you're in the fight and and that's probably like the best feeling to be in that situation, especially with your guys too. So, and I kind of knew I was, and I haven't told Yeski this, but kind of next to him because he's calm, cool and collected. And, you know, he was making me feel better. I was like, maybe if I'm next to him, he might calm me down a little bit. So, and we'd always, you know, chatter back and forth with each other. So you watch the rest of that ninth inning, your view of the foul ball, we'll say, I mean, there's the common theme of, you know, it was a tough play and there's a lot of foul territory, but what did you see in your takeaway from that foul ball off Caden's bat? Well, initially, because I knew that field, those dimensions pretty well, because that was one of the few things I made sure to get a grasp, because there's a ton of foul territory on that side. You know, I'm playing over there, so it's like I needed to know my boundaries. I knew as the ball went up, I'm like, gosh, that's going to stay in. And, you know, they have some athletes for sure. They're a very athletic team, so it's like that's probably a ball they're going to get to. And just thinking in my head initially, I'm like, oh, my God. And there's nothing you can do. You're just, it's that helpless feeling of, like, I just want that ball to come down. Hopefully, could there be a magical gust of wind that kicks that ball out? And as it dropped, because you could kind of see the second baseman, you know, he was coming over, but he was coming in hot. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, he's going to try this ball. Because I thought initially right fielders got this ball all the way. And I'm kind of thinking, he might overrun this ball. And then their right fielder pulls up, and it just drops. And we all just kind of, like, and then it's like, okay, we got this. Like, that's our chance. Like, you shouldn't have given this this second chance. And it's a good, it's so funny because Yeski is just to the left of me. He actually looks over at me and he's like, you know, Caden's about to hit a ball through the six hole right here. Just watch. And he looked right back at the field dead serious. And I'm just like freaking out, right? Like, I'm looking at him like, is this guy serious right now? And there you go, you know, like next few pitches, Caden hits a ball hard and you know it's going through the six hole. And I look at Yeski and we're fist pumping, like high five and freaking out. And so that's that's a funny story that I like to tell. And just, oh my gosh, it's so funny to think back about. I still get goosebumps. So he predicted not just a hit in general, but specifically the gap because he hit it to the oh. left of the shortstop. Yeah, just through the six hole. And I'm just looking at him like, are you crazy? Like, are you a witch? What's going on? But um, no, 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 that was so, it was so funny and just like so cool in that moment, you know, because he, again, he was just calm, cool, collected, and I'm just like over here, you know, Caden's got this, but still like, I can't do anything. I'm not playing anymore. Like, here we go. 
And then Nate Yeski said, Larnick will hit a home run and Kevin Abel will go nine innings tomorrow and we win five to zero. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So you win game two, spoiler alert, five to three, final score. Uh, Mulholland closes out the ninth inning. So the series is tied one to one. And I've noticed every player for Oregon State seems to have a similar yet still interesting answer for the question, how confident did you feel that you'd win game three after game two? Oh my gosh, so confident. That momentum shift was incredible. And really, I know you asked Case this, like baseball is, it's a game of momentum. And it was coming out of that game, I've never seen a team that was so focused and determined. You know, we were excited, of course. But there was this settled, just calm energy about us and a swagger, you could say, that it's like, okay, this is what we broke on all year is finish. And, like, we have an opportunity to finish tomorrow. We're going to get after it. And there's not a lot that Case needed to say because he knew that everyone was on the same page and you could feel it. And that's the, that was the best thing coming out of that game. Tomorrow, it's like always envisioning it that we're going to be national champions and having that opportunity. And now all you got to do is just everyone just do their job. Did you notice anything from Arkansas? Like some of the players, I think, watched their post-game press conference after game two. If you watched that or saw their demeanor, oh, yeah. anything like that, did you notice anything from Arkansas between game two and three? I mean, I felt I'm sure they liked their chances too, but I think it would also be a little ignorant to think that we didn't have momentum going into that third game. And, you know, knowing that they had an opportunity to put us away and they didn't. And again, that's just kind of how baseball is. You know, I don't think there's anyone, you know, really to blame on that. But I also think if we're in that situation between me, Nick and Trev, I'm telling you, I don't think that ball's dropping, you know. I'm, I'm running into someone if I don't hear anyone talking before I'm letting that ball drop. But, you know, and again, you know, hats off to them. Like I said, baseball is baseball's a crazy game. Like things like that happen. It's crazy how you can give, especially a team like us, you give us a small window or an opportunity like that. It's like, you, you know, at that level, you're going to capitalize. So you do get to game three. You get the start at first base, game three, yep. the final game of the season, win or lose, and you felt confident yep. you would win. And uh, you started out pretty well. You're standing a few yards away from Kevin Abel as he's doing work from the first inning to the second inning to when you probably thought he was going to get pulled out in the third inning through the fourth, fifth, sixth, etc. What adjectives would you use to describe Kevin Abel that day? That, that was just dominant. Dominant. I mean, that was the single-handedly the best pitching performance I've ever seen in my life, especially coming off of just throwing in game two. And I know he didn't really throw a lot, but at the same time, I mean, just – it was incredible. Everything was on. His stuff was electric. And I think the biggest thing that honestly, all of us, we were so proud of was his demeanor and his confidence on the mound. And it was just a settle, you know, like, I'm not trying to throw this in your face, but it's like, I know I'm good. I'm going to get after you. I'm going to stay with my process. And you could just tell in his face, it's almost like he kind of had no emotion at some point. He was just, he was so in tune with his process that he kind of became his process. Alan likes to say that, but it, I mean, it was true. You, you, I remember going to the dugout. I'm like, I'm not talking to that guy. Like, and I'm usually one to be like, dude, keep it going. But I was like, I'm going to let him do his thing. I'm going to stay far away from him. If he keeps this up 100%. We're winning this game. No doubt. I remember seeing video of him in the dugout and there's just like a bubble around him in the ninth inning. Gretler scores. Kevin reaches out for a high five, but like other than that, like nobody's talking to him. No one's touching him. (laughs) So let me give you a a little trivia question about about game three, which I think you'll get. It'll be an easy one. 
Okay. Uh, the 2018 college baseball season, which started in February, as it does every year, there are 296 Division One baseball teams, which play over the next few months, each of which has about 35 players on the roster. So that's yep. roughly 10,000 Division One baseball players in America, and there's thousands of games being played. Of the entire 2018 college baseball season, who got the final RBI of the year? I did. Yes. Yep, I did. How did, how did you get that final ribby? Oh, my God. I think, you know, again, like, it's, that was the nice part of that lineup is just knowing that I was constantly going to get pitches to hit. And at that time, it's like I was a pretty good – toward the end of that season, I was a really good fastball hitter. And, you know, if you, if you couldn't get a breaking ball over early in the count – yeah, because I did struggle with spin, but, like, I got myself in a good count. I think it was a 2-1 count, actually. Um, and I got a heater. It was kind of elevated and, you know, um, I got, I got a good barrel on it and, you know, hit it, hit it in the right field. And that feeling for me was big because I felt like that was kind of the dagger. I'm just knowing, you know, at that point, having that extra cushion and just looking at the dugout and I was fired up. I remember coming off the field, looking at our small fan section, you know, in the sea of red and I was just fist pumping, maybe said some choice words too, but I, I mean, I was fired up and I feel like that was needed in that moment. For me specifically, I remained so calm and cool. And I still knew we had another, you know, half inning at the same time. I kind of needed to let that out because I, I was just fired up and, you know, I was excited. And the fact that I could, I could, you know, play a part in helping our team, you know, put up another run on the board. I mean, that, that was big for me. There's a couple of last questions since we're right at the end of game three. What happened when Kevin Abel gets the final strikeout of game three? Who, who did you first look to to hug the dog pile? Take me to the, the final moments of the College World Series, and you're now a national champion. So before the last pitch, um, this was so funny because just how the at-bat was going, how the inning was going. I started to look around and I always went to Trev. Like I always looked to Trev because Trev would kind of give me some acknowledgement. Nick, no, I let Nick do his own thing. I'm like, dude, this guy's on his, his own world. He's locked in. I kind of look at Nick and he, you can tell he's just focused, right? And I'm like freaking out inside. I got butterflies. I'm like, we, we got this. Like we for sure got this. I look at Trev and he starts like smiling, you know, kind of nodding at me. Like, and I look at him and I'm like, I start smiling. So I turn back around. I'm like, all right, Zach, like you got to focus up. Like you just got to do your job. And then, you know, strike three happens. I see Rutch freak out. And, of course, Rutch tosses the ball. It's like, God, put it in your pocket. So he tosses everything. I'm going up to the side. I was one of the first ones there. I didn't really know what to do. I throw my hat, my glove. I don't know where they went. And I knew I was kind of staying on the side of the pile because I didn't get, like, deep down in it. Because Rutch, I mean, Rutch is a big dude. Like, he's coming in hot, right? So I don't want any part of that. So I'm staying on the side, and then all of a sudden people are just piling on. I don't know. I think that was that moment of, like, especially in that season and going into it and how I prepared college baseball is so long, the off season so long and you're grinding with those guys and you're doing things like you don't want to just do 6am lifts. Like, and with that team, it's like, there was a constant level of greatness that was to be upheld. And it was in everything we did. It was in weights. It was in practice. If you weren't doing stuff to your ability and borderline perfection, it's like, you know, what are we doing? We're trying to make a run at this thing. So it was every single day. You got to be locked in. And, you know, that's long over a course of the season. But that feeling at the end of knowing that you accomplished something that you set out to do, you can't beat that, especially at that level. You know how hard it is to win a national championship. I don't care how talented your team is. Like, you got to have some things that, that go your way. And to do it with that group of guys that a lot of those guys, you know, I still talk to all the time. Like, they're my best friends. And that was really special to me and just something I'll always look back on. 
Who have you stayed in closest contact with teammates from that team who, who ended up being your best closest friends after you even after you left Oregon State? Yeah, so Quan and I were always like we're best friends and then also Rutch too. Um, those are really two of my best friends. I love those guys, you know, especially Rutch now, like he's back at home. So, you know, being from the same hometown, it's like we're still we're training all the time together, you know, hanging out. So, yeah, I, I would say those two guys, you know, for sure, my best friend. But even like, you know, Trev, I've talked to, I've talked to Gret. You know, I'm still, I mess with Nick all the time. Like I'm on social media with him. Anytime I see some sort of like golf fail on like Instagram or some sort of video, like tag a buddy that's got a swing like this, I'm sending that to Nick just to let him know. Because someone, you know, someone's got to chirp these guys. Um, so I take every opportunity I can, you know, to mess with guys. And so, no, but it's, it's things like that that, you know, mean a lot. Even if you're not, because of course, we're all going to go our separate ways. We're all doing different things. You know, guys move on, guys move, maybe start families eventually. But it's nice to have those, those sources of communication with those guys. Right. Last thing that kind of felt special about this team was, a connection, I think, started by Logan Ice, but it was with uh, a big Beaver fan, a kid named Drew Bodigheimer, who is a heart yep. transplant kid. I think he lived in Arizona, but his parents were Beaver grads, and so he came out to Omaha. I think it was like the second time. I think he was there in 17 also, but he got to see you win the championship in 2018. And uh, I remember seeing him on the field and Trevor Larnick's talking with them and the camera, the TV cameras pick up Trevor Larnick saying, Hey, you're part of this team too. Like it really seemed like the guys rallied around him. Do you remember any interactions you had with Drew or what it meant for a team to be playing oh. for a kid like him? Oh my gosh. I mean, that, and that was another thing that was so great is he was welcome to open arms in our team. And you talk about a definition of a kid that's really, a true warrior it was something that he would constantly he no no child first off should have to go through something like that especially you know it's just so unfair in the sense that he hasn't really even been able to experience life and it makes you really appreciate the situation that we were in and that we are in you know a lot of guys are still playing or doing different things but it's like you're healthy and able and we're in this position that we can impact so many people and drew constantly provided that extra i think just that energy boost guys on the team loved him that's a kid that you know there's certain days that he was going through a lot of pain and he was very uncomfortable all the time yet he gets up out of bed every day and he's going to put on a good attitude and have a good face and like he wants to come to beaver baseball games and he wants to be a part of this team and so for i think guys really started to realize that the more he was around and um, really kind of latched onto that because I don't know how you couldn't seeing that kid smile and knowing that winning that national championship gave him even if it was like you know for a little bit just those moments of happiness to kind of forget about his situation forget about things he's gone through that means the world I feel like that's pure you know just happiness and that's something that I think about a ton and you know I'm so happy he was able to be on the field with us being that setting experience that with us because he you know if anything it's not so much like Shoot, you, you can say, yeah, the players, you know, the, the players did this, but it, there's so many other pieces to a team, and he was as much a part of that team, even if he wasn't on the field. And absolutely, he deserves something like that, no doubt. If anything, he deserved it more than we did. So, and I truly believe that. And, um, yeah, he was, he was for sure a bright spot for us. Like you said, he may not have lived – a normal life up to he's about nine years old and so he hasn't experienced the normal things a kid right. would but if watching sports and being a sports fan is a normal thing to do which it is then he did get a taste of what it feels like to, to lose with Oregon State in 2017 and to win yep. with you in 2018 so that was Absolutely. that was awesome to see it's it's so fun to hear all your memories everything from 
uh, your beginning of college to waiting to be the leadoff hitter in the ninth inning to the celebration of game three. Zach, I really appreciate your time and talking about the College World Series and everything you got going on. Best of luck uh, whenever you're able to play baseball again and, and hopefully moving up the ranks and moving on to coaching or whatever it'll be after that. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Such a blast to talk with Zach Taylor about the 2018 College World Series and everything else he's got going on in life. We actually kept talking off the air for a little bit after we wrapped up the interview, and he was sharing about how, you know, nobody's really interviewed me about the 2018 championship in a while, and it's kind of fun to go back and get my heartbeat racing a little bit and recall some of these specific moments. And it's been similar with some of the other players as well who really enjoy talking about this team. I mean, of course they would. It's a national championship, but still fun to be a part of it. And I hope that you are enjoying these conversations. I've talked with several of these players from the same team, and I'll continue to do that with some more as well and put together a larger documentary. This will be a longer-term project a few months from now, but using audio from all these players remembering the 2018 World Series and narrating through the entire time in Omaha and all the storylines revolving around Oregon State that season. So that'll be fun. Keep an eye on that. Check out kingdomhome.org. That's Matt Boyd's charity. And stay tuned for future episodes of the Beaver Tales podcast. Text a friend about it. Text a duck fan just to troll them and enjoy uh, this podcast as we keep it going. I'm Josh Warden. Until next time on the Beaver Tales podcast, good night and go Beavers.